Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. I'm Bela Seabrow, and welcome to The Definitive Wrap. We thank Vinus for hosting our show. A quick commercial break for Pesach. If you're looking to make beautiful memories at a luxurious, affordable program, look no further than Pesach with Chef Lam at the Hilton in Somerset, New Jersey, where you'll be treated to an acclaimed, award-winning chef and pastry chef, Yuval, from Israel. Great lineup of acclaimed speakers and entertainers, Full children's program, beautiful baltafila, strict hashgacha supervision under Rav Benyamin Taub, Shmura Matzah, and non For further information, please call Jake at 718-436-0682. Again, that number is 718-436-0682. And back to our show. Other than the search for the fountain of youth, which is a fictional hope and aspiration, The topic of wishes and hope that people talk about and politicians campaign for is the promise to fix or make world peace happen. We all want world peace. We crave it. We need it. Not a day goes by where something does not take place that reinstates the knowledge that we don't have world peace. And we need to find a way to achieve it. Well, my dear audience, we might not master world peace today, But we will learn a few tips from our esteemed guest, Rabbi Ken Spiro, who interviewed 1,500 Westerners from the United States, South America, and throughout Europe. And he came up with and published that respect for human life, peace and harmony, justice and equality, education, family, and social responsibility are fundamental, fundamental human values that regardless of background, when all those aspects are achieved, yes, world peace is possible. Rabbi Ken Spiro is an author and senior lecturer and researcher for Eish HaTorah in Jerusalem. In addition, he is a licensed tour guide from the Israel Ministry of Tourism. Rabbi Spiro graduated from Vassar College with a BA in Russian language and literature and did graduate studies at the Pushkin Institute in Moscow. He has an MA in history from the Vermont College of Norwich University and rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva Eshatora in Jerusalem. He has appeared on numerous radio and television programs such as BBC Radio and TV, the National Geographic Channel, the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, Channel 4 England, and Aretz Sheva Israel National Radio. He is the author of World Perfect, The Jewish Impact on Civilization, published by HCI Books, Crash Course in Jewish History, published by Targum Press and Destiny, Why a Tiny Nation Plays Such a Huge Role in History, published by Geffen Publishing House. His writings and seminars can be accessed at www.kenspiro.com and www.h.com. Born and raised in the United States, Rabbi Spiro has lived in Israel since 1982. 
He served in a combat infantry unit in the IDF. A father of five children, he currently lives in Jerusalem. Rabbi Spiro, it gives me tremendous honor to welcome you to the Definitive Rap. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, you're speaking to me from the old city of Jerusalem. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what a tremendous honor. You know, I feel like I'm right there, which is where I want to be right now. I want to tell you that I, as many others, and what we stand for at the Definitive Rap is respect for human life and the longing for people to live in harmony with one another. I did my research, and I seeked you out for our show today. Rabbi Spiro, I am in awe of your work. Let's first start with a crash course in Jewish history, as you appropriately named one of your books. And let's talk about the hatred and persecution that Jewish people have endured from the beginning of time and why. Wow, nothing like a, a small, easy, light question. Uh, if I can give you the, 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 the really short version of it. I mean, we Jews have been accused of pretty much everything in human history. You know, we killed God's son. We, we kidnapped Christian babies, used their blood to bake matzo, poison wells. We're in league with the devil. We control the world's economy, seismic activity, solar flares. We trigger tsunamis in Southeast Asia to drown Indonesia with tidal raves. We release sharks into the Red Sea to destroy Egyptian tourism and some vultures to spy on Saudi Arabia. And Iran accused us two years ago of stealing their cloud cover. And it's pretty wild that some of these things were said a thousand years ago and some of these things were said a few weeks ago, uh, but none of them had anything to do with reality. And no matter what shape we Jews have twisted ourselves in, in history, we've been accused of being rich, poor, dominant, lazy, servile, aggressive, you know, what, what, too much, similar, the same, whatever shape we've twisted ourselves into in human history, the anti-Semitism never goes away. It just comes back. And, and, and from a different angle, a different excuse. All of the things we've been accused of in human history are basically excuses, meaning they're not really the cause. And we, get, we tend to get distracted by the, all these different excuses and don't focus on really, really driving anti-Semitism. But to, re, to, to take what is an entire presentation and condense it down into a couple of minutes, I think the best way I've heard anti-Semitism ever summed up is Rabbi Chaim of Voloshin, who is a great rabbinic leader of the early 19th century, founder of the Voloshin Yeshiva, the, the, the mother of all modern yeshivot. He had a great line. He said, when Jews don't make Kiddush, Gentiles make Havdalah. And he doesn't mean literally. Kiddush and Havdalah, the two ceremonies we make, the beginning of Shabbat, they're both made on wine. One is when we come from the six workaday days of the week and go to that higher level of spirituality, which is the Shabbat. That's Kiddush, Kiddush. And then Havdalah at the end, when we also own a cup of wine, what we go from that higher level down to that lower level, the mundane. And what Rav Chaim of Elijah isn't talking about is literally making Kiddush. He's talking about what the job of the Jewish people is, which, by the way, in my opinion, is lost on a lot, a lot of Jews, including, I got to be careful how I say this, but including a lot of observant Jews. That the purpose of being Jewish, a lot of, you know, a lot of secular Jews think it's tikkun olam. We got to fix the world. Tikkun olam has become the, the be all and end all of the Jewish world. Now, social justice, which is a subcategory of tikkun olam, is definitely a part of Judaism. It's one of the things we introduce to humanity, being proactively responsible for the world, but it's only a little part of it. And a lot of the religious world thinks the purpose of being Jewish is, you know, we have to either serve God or, or uh, learn Torah and do mitzvot. 
And don't get me wrong. These are all, first of all, you can't serve God. He's infinite. It's a figure of speech, but not a reality. You can't do anything for an infinite being. And Torah and mitzvot are super important for Jewish continuity and connection and everything, but they're means to an end. The way I like to say it simply is we, the Jews, we're the God Squad. There used to be a TV show on in America decades ago called the Mod Squad. We're the God Squad. Our job from Abraham until the present is to live and act in a way that inspires other people. We are humanity's role models. We are supposed to bring that relationship with God and the values that come from that relationship down to the human race. And that's what chosen people is all about. We're not chosen for privilege. We're chosen for responsibility to be, to basically inspire the world. And that is what Kiddush Hashem is about. Let's bring those values because all the values you mentioned, like value of life, equal justice, peace as a permanent ideal state for the world, education, proactive social responsibility, all those come out of a fundamental concept of one God and one absolute standard of morality. People like to call it, I know Dennis Prager, I think, calls it ethical monotheism. But we're the conduit for ethical monotheism to the human race. And the way we do that is by living and acting individually and collectively in a way that inspires people. People should look at us and say, look at those Jews, look how they act, look at their families, look how they raise their children, look how they educate them, look how they do business, look how they run that unique country called Israel. What's their secret? And that's what Kiddush Hashem is all about. So that's really the issue. And I know there's a lot of confusion about Kiddush Hashem because when you study Jewish history, the ultimate expression of Kiddush Hashem, which means sanctifying God's name, is dying for what you believe in. We, are, we Jews taught the world value of life, but we also taught the world that there are things worth dying for and that, there's, and that your, the spiritual, the, eterni- your eterni- the eternity of your soul is sometimes worth giving up your physical life for. It seems to be contradictory, but it's actually part of the same thing, because only when you're willing to put it all on the line, even to your own life, are you truly making a statement about what is ultimately meaningful for us, for you as a person, for us as a person, for me as a person. So that's like the big, grand expression of Kiddush Hashem. But really, you can do Kiddush Hashem in everything we do as Jews, you know, I always use a little example of I'm late for I'm late for something, so I push an old lady out of the way to get on a bus or a train because I got to get on there, and I'm wearing my my kippah. That's a that's a desecration of God's name. That's the opposite. But if I see the little old lady struggling and I stop and I help her and I get her a seat, it's basic dignity and basic kindness. But it's also a kiddush Hashem that I, as a Jew, identifiable as such, act in a way that, as we say in Yiddish, is mensch like. It's the right thing to do. So that, so that is really what our job is in the world, to be constantly doing it. By doing the little Kiddush Hashem all the time, we make the big impact that, it, that, that changes the world. And that's, it's, a little, it's a little thing that makes a big difference. There's one final expression I always use. It says, trifles make perfection, but perfection is no trifle. It's the little things we do constantly by being aware and focused on what our end game is as a nation and our, and our, our job in history that makes the huge transformative impact on the human race. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you once quoted David Livingstone, the famous 19th century British missionary and explorer, that it wasn't the lions and tigers that got us. It was the little bugs. Your point was that it's the little things that t- sometimes make the biggest difference. And we saw that during COVID and we're still in the middle of it, a bug that the world thought would pass as a quick virus. That's what we all thought. But yet it took so many lives throughout the world, and it still does. And it wasn't just 
COVID that caused loss of life. But during that period, from the time it started pretty much, there was so much unrest in the world, so much division and lack of unity. Can you give us your opinion and commentary of why this was? And if anything, it should have been the time where human beings stood together. We should stand together globally as one people, helping and loving one another. I mean, I guess that might be too Pollyannish to assume, but one would think that that's what would have happened. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. It should be generally tragedy and pressure will bring people together. The problem is the world is so divided, so politicized that what happened with like COVID was it became completely a political issue. Like wearing a mask was a statement about what you believe about the world holistically. And because of that, it was just a further, I would say ingredient in causing greater divisiveness in the world, which is, again, it goes back to the whole thing. If we're not all united on one ideal set of beliefs and truths, we're going to get the, the vision in the world. And again, that goes back to our mission in, in the world is to represent certain realities that are absolute. Unfortunately, in a good chunk of the world today, realities become this narrative. And I have a worldview and everything has to fit into that. And if it doesn't agree with my narrative, I just reject it, even if it's true, which is why facts can be disregarded. Truth can be disregarded. You can make people will, will suppress other people's opinions. And, you know, when stuff was coming out about Masks, no masks, social distancing, vaccines. This should be a discussion we should all be able to have logically and openly. But because things, people are so divided and some people are just have their fingers in their ears figuratively, if it interfered with their holistic narrative view of the world, they just didn't want to hear it at all. And it, it goes back to another interesting idea that, that Judaism brings down in the Mishnah, the, the Mishnah, which is the codification of Jewish law, is not a prophetic book. Like the Bible is prophecy, but in there's chapter nine of one section of the Mishnah called Sota. It talks about what will be right before the Messiah comes. And it makes all these statements, all of which have come true about breakdown of the family, lack of respect for elders, inflation. It's all mentioned there. It's mind blowing, but it says the the truth will be absent. Truth will be absent. And that is the really big point when you can't, when, when people are not interested in coming to a common agreed upon conclusion based on observable reality and provable circumstances, then you're just going to get tremendous splits and division in the world. My Rosh Hashiva of Noach Weinberg, a blessed memory who founded a Shatara and is one of the driving forces behind finding the whole Balchuva movement to bring Jews back to Judaism. He used to have a great statement. He used to say that all men of good intention will reason together and come to a common conclusion. And the first decision a human being has to make is that I'm, comfort is not what I'm about. I'm not afraid to change if I know it's true. I want to live in reality. That's what Judaism is all about. We're going back to what I said before. You know, we say Hashem Elokechem Emet. God, by definition, is the ultimate reality and truth. The whole physical universe is just a projection of his infinite consciousness. To the extent that a person aligns him or herself with the reality of that being and what comes to the values that come from that being is the extent that a person is going to live in reality and be real with truth which is why we have this idea of striving for truth. That, you know, like truth and the word God are even synonymous. We say, Hashem Elokechem Emet, you know, the, the Lord our God, he is truth. They go together. It, that's a fundamental belief. That's what the greatness of Abraham was precisely that point, was when the whole world is worshiping idols, which is the ultimate lie about the essential spiritual nature of reality. 
which is behind the physical world. He is this clear thinking super genius who says, I want truth regardless of consequences. I will live and if necessary, die for the reality of God, not because God needs us to die for him. You don't do anything for God. He's infinite. But without that connection, we're lost. Our values are going to deteriorate to the point where all the fundamental values that we hold dear to us, value of life and everything else, equal justice, it all is going to fall apart and the world's going to degenerate into uh, not just divisiveness, but evil, which goes back to the kind of the first point I was making. I got so into explaining about Kiddush Hashem, I really forgot to answer the question you're asking, which is, and it comes together beautifully. What's the real cause of anti-Semitism? If, we, if you go back to Rabbi Chaim of Belushin's statement, when Jews don't make Kiddush, Gentiles make Abdallah. If we don't fill the world as Jews individually and collectively with the values that come from God by living and acting in a way that makes, what inspires us and makes people want to learn from us and learn those values and emulate those values, then the world will be full of the opposite values. The opposite values are evil. There's a great expression in physics that nature abhors a vacuum. Vacuums don't like to exist. They'll be filled with something. And if we don't fill them with the holiness and the kedusha and the, those positive values, the opposite values come into the world. The opposite values are evil. When evil comes into the world, it will always target us first. You can literally tell how countries are doing in terms of democracy and human rights by how they treat their Jews. That only works if Jews are living in the country. But countries that start to come after Jews, it starts with us, but then it spreads everywhere else. We're, in the words of, again, Dennis Prager, who said it very nicely, he said, we are the canary in the coal mine. We're humanity's litmus test. And there's a non-Jewish author named George Gilder, who had a great, he wrote a book called The Israel Test. And I'm just paraphrasing what he says, but he says, just as Jews within a country are the measure of that country's morality and values, Israel is the Jew amongst the nations. Show me what a country thinks of the Jewish state, and I'll tell you all about their values. It pretty much is, it's, it, always, it almost always works. You know, it's not an accident. The countries that most hate Israel, countries like North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, these are not, you know, Western liberal democracies that have Judeo-Christian values. These are the countries that lack those values to the extreme or have perverted what, in the case of, you know, radical Iran, you know, in the words of Jonathan Sachs, is not in God's name. Some people say they do things in God's name, but they're doing the exact opposite. But these are not, these are not, these are not nations and individuals and governments that are in line with the values that we brought to the world that today we love to call the Judeo-Christian ethics, which are, by the way, the foundations to a very large extent of Western liberal democracy. So for our audience that may not be so familiar, um, why is there so much anti-Semitism in the world? I mean, from the beginning of time, how did it start? And that's a question that secular people ask all the time. Well, again, it goes back to that point that it starts as soon as historians start writing about Jews, we see that uh, Jews appear on the radar as being weird and different. If you read about Greek and Roman, writers who are the first historians in the West say about us. Remember that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? It's like Jews are from Mars and the rest of the world is from Venus. I mean, these people have this one invisible God. We all have these pantheon of gods who act just like us, only worse, like a giant telenovela. We have temples with images and idols. But these Jews, they have this invisible guy. Uh, They don't marry our women, worship our gods, eat our meat, drink our wine. Like, Who are these arrogant, different, weird people? And when you set yourself apart like that, you're going to be a target. Always the other is always going to be a target. But also, 
because we're not just setting ourselves apart, but we're demanding, uh, not that we're conquering and converting and we have to do things. It's never the Jewish way, but just by the fact that we exist as a sort of opposite contrasting role model has been really bothersome to a lot of people throughout nations, throughout history and peoples and civilizations and cultures. And you see this will continue again. It hides behind many different smoke screens and Mm -hmm. excuses of all the horrible things we've done, you know, again, like poisoning wells and bringing the black death to Europe, or as the Palestinian authority said, you know, giving COVID to Gaza, it's no different. It's all the same stuff. But behind that ultimately is the fact that these annoying Jews continue to stick to their beliefs and, and, and are just always standing out it's like a spotlight flashing on our failures and that we, and people who have really wanted to, you know, move the world in a different direction away from those values have always viewed the Jews, even though we're incredibly teeny tiny 0.2% of the world's population with no empire, we're not trying to convert people and force our ideas in the world, but one way or another, we're always even secular Jews who are completely disconnected from the traditional Jewish national historic mission on some level, we're always being revolutionary. We're always trying to change the world. And occasionally you get, most people believe the excuses and most people get distracted by them, which means a lot of Jewish effort and money and time is spent on trying to explain that we don't do the things we're accused of. That's never going to work because it's like a doctor trying to treat a disease when he's constantly dealing with the symptoms but not getting to the root cause. So to pour millions and hundreds of millions of dollars into Holocaust commemorations and, and anti-defamation league things and apologetics and showing how Jews are loyal to the countries they're in. It doesn't make a difference what we do. So they're always going to come after us. And occasionally you're going to get someone like a Hitler. I know it sounds weird to quote the guy, but uh, who actually is very honest. Unlike everyone else, when you really see what Hitler thinks, you know, Hitler says the Jews put two scars on humanity. Conscience on the soul and circumcision on the body. And they're both inventions of the Jew. It's interesting because the Greeks at the time of Hanukkah went after circumcision, which is the the sign of our relationship with God on our our physical bodies. But the Greeks went and outlawed it. And, And Hanukkah was history's first religious ideological war. The Greeks were not going after Jews. They were going after Judaism. It was paganism's war on the one monotheistic faith, because from the birth of Abraham to the birth of Christianity for 2000 years, we will exist alone in the world as the only people believing in one God. And everyone else is like thinking we're crazy and trying to kill us. And then over a process of several thousand years, we literally weaned indirectly, albeit most of the time through offshoot religions like Christianity. And, and, and Islam, we weaned today billions of people whose ancestors used to be a bunch of amoral polytheists. We weaned them off that. And they now are more or less following a worldview that's based on a Jewish worldview of one God. Okay, the Christian one has some parts. Okay, I'm not going to go into that. But there's one God. He created the world. He gave one standard of morality for humanity. He chose the Jewish people. And then they say, oh, but he changed his mind and chose us after. That's a a separate problem and a different conversation, but that is the greatest transformation in human history in terms of spirituality and morality. And even though we've dragged the world kicking and screaming and moved it much closer, that's what Maimonides, the great medieval Jewish scholar says. He says thousands of years ago, everyone was like one God, what are you crazy? And this is Maimonides saying this in the, in the 12th century. He goes, now the whole world talks about one God and a deterministic worldview and moving towards this idea of peace for humanity and redemption and brotherhood. These are all ideas that do not exist in the ancient world. 
You don't find them. That's what I wrote my first book, World Perfect, about showing you how incredibly brutal were some of the most sophisticated civilizations of the ancient world. They had nice men with togas talking about philosophy and beautiful classical buildings. They loved art, but they were killing babies, you know, and watch people slaughter each other for sport and had no social responsibility, incredible institutionalized inequality and injustice. And this was the way of the world. You would be shocked if we could beam people back to see how brutal and callous was the vast majority of the ancient world. And it doesn't mean all these people were evil. Most people in human history are just trying to survive. Right. And it doesn't mean that um, nice ideas and technology didn't come out of the ancient world. It did. But it does mean that this beautiful vision of values that you started asking about at the beginning is all a byproduct of what we brought into the world from God. And anti-Semitism is rebelling against that. And occasionally you get a guy like Hitler, fast forward, he, you know, what's he doing? He's a German. He came from Germany, the most technologically, culturally sophisticated country in the world, the early 20th century. And it's a Christian country. No, Hitler was a pagan. Hitler, Hitler is really honest. As a matter of fact, I always say, Bela, the best things to understand what really drives anti-Semitism are the last seven words of the Hitler Youth song which is what every kid in Germany is singing from 1933 to the end of World War II in 1945. Listen to the words of the song. We are the joyous Hitler youth. We don't need any Christian virtue. Our leader is our savior, meaning Hitler. The Pope and rabbi shall be gone. We want to be pagans once again. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's, It's right out there. And this is not 2,000 years ago, time of Hanukkah, or two and a half thousand years ago, the Romans. This is, and that is, there's the curtain is pulled aside. We can finally see, you know, and it brings everything together, what we stand for, what our values are. And someone like Hitler says, you know, the world will operate on one of two concepts, the natural concept or the human concept. The natural concept, like nature is brutal, but nature is balanced. If you watch these animal shows, you know, like, I love, you know, like the lions hunting a herd of wildebeest in Africa. The, 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 you know, the, the lion doesn't take on the alpha male of the herd. What, who does the lion go after? The baby, the sick, the weak. But, you know, if you hear about, God forbid, a criminal doing that, like to an old lady or a baby, you go, oh, my God, what a sociopathic evil person. The lion's not being evil. The lion's being natural. He said... And, and that's and, and Hitler said that that's the way the world used to be. Like Rome didn't respect any country's borders. The only people they didn't conquer are people they couldn't conquer. The strong survived the weaker lunch, survival of the fittest. That's nature. That's natural. The herd stays strong. The lions stay strong. It's brutal, but it's balanced. The Jews introduced this idea called the human concept. Which is, you know, you got to take care of the weak and the poor and you got to, you know, in the ancient world, a kid with even a minor birth defect, cleft palate was left out to die. You kill children for sex selection constantly. And the Jews, they do, oh, they let handicapped people. The, the Nazis immediately started, started murdering uh, handicapped people in Germany, Germans. Right. In America, they did it first. They, they forcibly sterilized thousands in California because of, you know, eugenics movement. Thousands of mentally handicapped people were forcibly sterilized. The Germans just took it to the next level. But that Hitler basically looked at himself as... And it's interesting, like, evil people never think they're evil. Good people say, I'm trying to be good. Evil people are sure they're good. Hitler views himself as a messiah. I am saving the world from an unnatural standard of the human concept, which is going to weaken and destroy the human nature, like raising a lion in a safari park where he doesn't know how to hunt anymore because he's forgotten how to be natural. You raise a lion in that safari park and you let him go free. 
What's going to happen? He's going to get eaten in five minutes in Africa. So that's what the Jews have done to the world. Weak nations survive. I always say if, if, if America were like Nazi Germany, Canada would be independent for three days and Mexico would be conquered three days after that. He said, the, the, but he said, this is, this is terrible. And we, and we, and we got to destroy it. And, and the source of it, and Hitler says, it's not enough just to kill the rabbis and burn down the synagogues. He said, every Jew has a unique soul. And he calls Jews, the Belzenhard, he calls us basil- basilicus or bacteria. He said, even a Jew who's disconnected from Judaism still has a Jewish soul, this Jewish blood, which if you let it multiply like a virus, will start spreading some sort of Jewish-based value system around the world, which is going to destroy humanity. And he says, I'm saving the world. And we should always be wary of people who think they're saving the world. The most dangerous people in human history are the ones who are sure they're saving the world. And that is the bottom line what it's about. And the scary part is even Jews who are completely disconnected, even Jews who side with our enemies. The enemies, history shows, the people who hate us come after all of us. They don't. We spend a lot of time as Jews distinguishing between what separates us, orthodox, conservative, reform, liberal, conservative. Non-Jews don't care. The people who hate us. In Auschwitz, there's only one line. You know, <laughs> you, could, you, could, you can try and disappear and hide, but when they find out who we are, they all plump us into the same basket. And the people who truly hate us, like Hitler recognized, that a Jew in any form, as a matter of fact, assimilated Jews, he viewed as more dangerous. Because an assimilated Jew can weasel his way into society and influence in a way that Jews traditionally couldn't because they were set apart. So they were more dangerous. So precisely when you get in Germany, a Jewish community that really wants to assimilate the German culture, boom, the, re- the anti-Semitism changes and says, until that time, we hate those Jews because they're different. Now Hitler says the most dangerous Jew is the one who's most like us. That's really weird. That's supernatural because hatred and, and bigotry always is dislike of the different. The more different you are from someone, the more they'll hate you. The more you like them you become, the less you're hated until you assimilate. Now, a lot of Jews have opted out of being Jewish, but it's really wild. Think about it. The greatest explosions of anti-Semitism have pretty much always taken place in places where Jews are most like non-Jews and not most different from them. And in my opinion, as a historian and a rabbi, that's the message we're getting from above is our role in human history is far too critical. If we don't act as the role models and bring these values into the world, no one else is going to do it. Humanity is going to eat itself alive and split apart and it's going to be disaster. And therefore we cannot be allowed to disappear. And when a certain number of Jews, critical mass, I don't know the algorithm, gets to the point where we're not Jews for Judaism, we're Jews for every other ism, but Judaism, then boom, for at least expect it, wham. That's why you're seeing you know, huge explosions of anti-Semitism all over the world, America, things are happening, guards outside, synagogue shootings. That stuff never happened. Those of us who grew up in America. But it's a powerful wake-up call. And rather be depressed by it, we should just recognize that being Jewish might not be comfortable, but it's always meaningful. And we should thank God, supposed to say every morning, Ashrenu Matov Helkenu, happy are we, how good is our lot, that we have the unique ability and we've done this in the past. History has proved it. We're 0.2% of the world's population, but we are the most transformative force in human history. And Jews with Jewish drive, connected with that software package that the creator of the universe gave us, which is the Torah, which is our guidance system, which is what keeps us Jewish and directs that drive in the right direction, are an incredibly powerful transformative force for the entire human race to bring these values into the world. And that not only ends anti-Semitism, it unites the human race and makes the world a lot nicer place to live in. 
One final question. Um, we're running out of time. This is amazing. Thank you so much. We learn from people that we meet, even if it's the little things that grow big. Uh, as a tour guide, you must have met people from all over the world and all walks of life who, as tourists, were curious. What have you learned from them or seen that had a strong impact on you? And can you please share that with us in the last minute that we have together? You know, there's a great line, much I learned from my teachers, more from my, my friends than most from my students. I have to say, I haven't, I haven't learned so many, like, because as a tour guide, I know more than them about the subject, but I've learned two things that are very interesting. One is a negative thing about how remarkably ignorant uh, people are of, of their connection to Israel and Judaism. And it's amazing. It's like the Jews are so well-educated, you know, statistically in the world, but they, they might be postdoctorates in secular education, but a lot of them are preschoolers when it comes to Judaism. But I also, what I've seen that's really powerful, and I've learned not so much from what people say, but just watching them light up, is how the power of being in Israel and connecting people, because really tour guiding is just teaching with much better props. It's having the land of Israel as your classroom, is how using the power of the land of Israel and using the, histor the history of the Jewish people, which is an amazing way of, of teaching so many things, uh, you, can, you can really transform people in a very short period of time. And I always tell people when I'm guiding them, and I see this, and I see this from watching them, I said, a week in Israel, you can grow more than a year studying the same material outside Israel, because there's something about being supercharged. And, and, and I've learned to, because when you live in a place, it's like living in New York and walking by, go by a Statue of Liberty every day, you don't even look at it after right. a while. Right. What, I've, what I've learned most is to try and see how miraculous Israel is through their eyes that we're back in our homeland, that Israel's rebuilt, that we've outlasted all the people who tried to destroy us. And we had this little, you know, this little bastion mm -hmm. of, of, you know, innovation and, 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 and democratic and, and really amazing country and the worst, one of the worst neighbors in the planet earth. And mm -hmm. watching them light up has been for me a big a constant source of inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Spiro, for enlightening us today and for giving us your precious time on our show for more information, Rabbi Spiro's writings and seminars, please visit www.penspiro.com and www.h.com. Thank you again. Thank you to Vin News. And, of course, thank you to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Rap with your host, Bela Sebrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.